You're to read the Apostolic Fathers, edited by Jack N. Sparks, reading First Clement, all the letters of Ignatius, Polycarp, and the Didache. You can read the whole book if you want. And that class is on the Apostolic Fathers, so surprise, surprise, that that's the book. By the way, that's a primary source. What's, what's a primary source? What do I mean by primary source? The original right. Right, you're not reading my opinion or someone's opinion about the Apostolic Fathers. You're reading the Apostolic Fathers, okay? Um, next, uh, for the next class, which is March 10th, the Faith, History, and Order of the Undivided Church. You're going to read the Orthodox Church, the Introduction through page 72, and then page 195 to the end. Okay. Now, if in new editions they've ta- changed the page numbers, if it seems like, hey, that stops in the middle of a chapter or something, just call me or write me and we'll figure it out together on, on the phone. Okay. Then another primary source for our meeting on April 14th, the principle of the English Reformation, is to read John Jewell's Apology of the Church of England. This particular one is edited by uh, someone that Bob, actually, Dr. Bob, knows. Uh, John E. Booty. All right. Everyone set on what books? Yes. Yes. Um, read from the beginning to the end. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So those are the next three books. Uh, so while I have not uh, really uh, done what you've hoped for and given you the whole list yet, at least you have the next three, the next three books. The Lord be with you. Let us pray, gracious and loving Father. We thank Thee for the gift of Thy Son, Jesus Christ who is light unto the world. May his light rise within our hearts and shine ever more fully that all the powers of darkness may be exposed, pierced, scattered, and sent to flight. Place deep within our hearts the gift of faith and may it bear forth much fruit. We pray that what is truly of thee may take root in our lives. Through Jesus Christ, thy Son, our Lord. Amen. Okay. Please be seated. So we're going to start with Praveen's question, um, which I'm going to answer only briefly because we now have just over three and a half hours to do something that really, um, when I used to teach this course, it went from ten to four. Okay? So uh, um, we need to, to get rocking and rolling, basically. Okay? But Praveen asked a question regarding the primacy of Scripture. Um, When we look at Scripture, there are some things that are difficult to understand. In fact, Peter himself in the New Testament identifies some of Paul, or he identifies Paul's writings as being scriptural. But he also comes right out and says that they're very difficult to understand. And, um, and that some people have used that to their advantage to twist his teaching. So the question becomes, and tell me if I'm not articulating it uh, correctly, um, Praveen, the question then becomes that if 
Scripture is unclear in a place, but someone else perceives it to be very clear, or even there are multiple interpretations of a particular passage, um, what do we do in those instances as far as getting to the, the truth of what Scripture is saying? Is that really your question? Okay. The answer is multifold, but it starts out with this. Mind your own business. No, I'm kidding. Okay. It starts out with this. First of all, as Anglicans, because we believe in the primacy of Scripture, we would allow Scripture to interpret Scripture. Okay? So the first thing we would do is look for other passages that within God's Word that are related to that particular passage. Okay? Remember, because of the depth of Scripture, most questions regarding Scripture are not coffee hour questions. They're not, you know, it takes some work. You know, this is God's revelation to us. Okay? We live in a society that wants everything black and white and clear as day. And if we can't understand it, then we really want nothing to do with it. Right? We don't want to work hard at understanding. In fact, I owned a smartphone for about a year, and I went in about three weeks ago, and I said to the guy behind the counter, this smartphone, it's smart, I'm not. I said, I can't figure it out. I've had it for a year. I, I don't want it anymore. I want your most basic cell phone that you have. If it was made after the 1980s, it's too complex for me. Okay, and I ended up with the phone that I have in, in my pocket. It's about this big, and you know, I've got to pull out the antenna. And, uh, um, but to be fair, how much time did I spend reading the book or sitting down with someone to explain it to me or taking a class online to understand the smartphone? Zero. Zero. And that's the, you know, I'm using myself as an example of how we are in our society. So scripture, it takes work to not only understand God's revelation, but to receive it into our hearts. There are passages of scripture that I read today, and I say, you know, that never dawned on me before. I was real excited on Christmas Eve. I think I may have been the only one, but the... um, there was a line in the scripture that just jumped on me, jumped out at me, and I just like ran with it in the sermon that day. And that is when the time of her deliverance had come, meaning Mary's deliverance from being pregnant. But I thought about how in so many ways within the scripture and within the writings of the uh, fathers, the patristic writings, Mary represents a all of fallen humanity longing for redemption, B, Israel longing for the Messiah, and C, the church having born the Messiah into the world. And I thought, wow, when the time of her deliverance had come, this is truly our deliverance. The coming of Christ into the world, God himself in the person of Jesus. So even today, as I'm reading scripture, there's no end to the depth of God's revelation. So in one sense, we can keep growing in that. But what do we do if um, it seems clear to us but not clear to others and so forth and so on?
Well, I'll give you a very good example of that. Okay. I was with a group of uh, evangelical fundamentalists uh, um, a few years ago, and they said, um, do you take the Bible seriously? And I said, well, of course I do. I'm an Anglican. And they said, yeah, but do you really take it seriously? And I said, well, define seriously. Well, are you, you know, are you a fundamentalist? Do you take every word literally? Okay. And I said, I believe that there is a literal, infallible, indefectible truth within Holy Scripture, but it's not always on the surface level. Ah, oh, well, I might as well say, I, I renounce Jesus, right? I mean, forget it. They were just like, ah, see, you don't take it seriously, you know. And it's the type of thing where if you said to them, so you really believe that God created the world in seven 24-hour periods? And they would say, no, he created the world in six 24-hour periods. On the seventh 24-hour period, he rested, okay? So that, you know, that kind of literacy. But when it came to John chapter 6, and I said to them, well, how come you believe that the, um, that the uh, Holy Communion is symbolic, that it's not really Christ's body and blood, when Jesus says... Um, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you, right? And he who partakes of this bread partakes of my flesh and on and on. And they said, oh, because what that really means, it, he's speaking here of his word, that we need to feed on him through reading his word. So I said, well, in other words, you take every word literally except John chapter 6. Okay, so what do you do then with John chapter 6? Is Jesus literally referring to uh, the sacrament of his body and blood, although he had not yet instituted it? Is this a foreshadowing? Or does this mean um, that we are to feed on him by, uh, by partaking of his word? Is this just a spiritual partaking in Christ? Or is this an um, a, a, a incarnational, sacramental partaking of Christ that he's referring to? So, now you have good and faithful Christians. This group are solid, evangelical, believing Christians, right? And you have some biblical, faithful, evangelical Anglicans and they are radically reading the, these, this particular passage of Holy Scripture differently. What would be the answer for the Anglican? Yes. Go back. Well, first you'd look at other parts of Holy Scripture. Allow Scripture to interpret Scripture. So you would look at 1 Corinthians chapter 10 when Paul says, the, the cup that we bless, is it not a partaking or a communion or a fellowship with, the Greek word there being koinonia, a most intimate communion, with the, with the blood of Christ? The, the bread that we break, is it not a koinonia with the body of Christ? 1 Corinthians chapter 11 uh, where he says, I received from the Lord that which I delivered to you, that on the night he was betrayed. So you look at these other places, right? 
We might also look the idea uh, in the Old Testament, foreshadowings. But we would look also to the early church fathers. How did the early church understand John chapter 6? How did the early church apply it? And the answer would be, is, is Jesus referring to the sacrament that he will institute? Is he referring to partaking of him in his word? Is he part- talking about something sacramental or purely spiritual? And if you read the fathers, you'll come up with the answer to all of them, yes. John chapter 6 is applicable to all of those. Um, but the, the early church fathers really saw a connection between John chapter 6 and the Eucharist. That Jesus is speaking of the sacrament that he would institute. Okay, um, I remember... Um, uh, in seminary years ago, someone coming up to me and saying, um, uh, well, do you believe, Michael, that um, Holy Communion is really his body and really his blood? And I quoted Martin Luther, something I don't often do, but I quoted Martin Luther, and I said, this is my body, this is my blood. What is it that you don't understand? Okay, to which uh, the person responded to me, um, well, Jesus also said that he was the door, but he's not an eight-foot plank of wood with a knob and then a couple of people who were standing around, you know, kind of, well, you really got McKinnon on that one. And and, and, um, inside in my sinfulness, I thought morons. Um, But in my humility, I didn't articulate that. But I said to myself, no, I said to them, this I did say to them, guys, this is easy. The church, from the time of Christ and the apostles, uh, you know, through, uh, through the first Christian millennium, never believed that Jesus was an eight-foot plank of wood with a knob. But they did believe that when you partook of Holy Communion, you were partaking of the body and blood of Christ. You know, and so that's where that's how we would do that. First, we allow Scripture to interpret Scripture. If there's still some um, uh, problem there, we look to the earliest writings of 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 the church. There are places, however, uh, where good, faithful, Orthodox Christians can disagree sometimes. So, for example. And unfortunately, I'm going to say this, and this is going to stir all kinds of wild questions in your mind, and we don't have time for them, because we need to move on to the topic of the day. So I'm, I'm warning you now, I'm about to torture you, okay? Here you have Joe, and here you have John, okay? They're both Orthodox, with a small o, Christians, Bible-believing Christians, okay? Joe believes that um, Genesis, the first few chapters, are written and are meant to be taken literally on the surface level in all cases. He believes God literally created the world in six 24-hour periods, rested on the seventh day, 
that there was the first man, his name was Adam. His wife was Eve. They had children, uh, right? Um, uh, Cain, what was his occupation? He sold pizzas. Cain. Then you had... Yeah, I think... You can call me Father Michael. And then, um, and then you had Abel, who was more Abel, right? Uh, and later they had Seth and etc., etc. Now, because Joe here takes the Bible absolutely literally on the surface level, he believes the following theological truths. He believes, number one, God created everything out of nothing. That God created the world that he called man into relationship with him. That man turned away from God and introduced sin into the world. That the result of sin was suffering and death. And that man was in need of a redeemer who is first promised in Genesis 3.15. Okay. Now you have John over here. John believes also that the first three um, chapters of Genesis convey an absolute, indefectible, infallible truth. But he doesn't believe it's always at the surface level. He believes, for example, that uh, the word Adam in Hebrew, Adam, is, means mankind, and that it's from the word Adama, meaning the earth. God created man from the dusts of the earth. But that God created man, and that remember when Cain uh, kills Abel, and uh, God sends him into another land? What is he worried about? Being killed. Here's the question for Joe. By whom? Killed by whom? Well, he says, all these other people, you know, the ones in the cities. Here's the question for Joe. What cities? Okay. Um, but John, so John says, however, I do believe that God created man, that God created his image, that, that mankind uh, turned away from right relationship with God. By doing so, they sinned. They introduced suffering and death into the world, and they're in need of a redeemer. And that Redeemer is first promised in Genesis 3.15. They start out from very different points of view. One is more literal on the surface level. The other is literal as well, but believes it's not always on the surface level. But they end up in the same orthodox theological positions. Okay? Um, so then, as an Anglican, you might say, Ah! But let's find out who's right. Is it Joe? Or is it John? So, you go to the fathers, right? And you look them up. Guess what? Some of the fathers hold Joe's position, and some of the fathers hold John's position. What does that say to me? It's not a matter of orthodoxy on this particular issue. Okay? Now, you take Joe and John and you apply them to things like the resurrection of Jesus and his death on the cross. Joe takes it literally. Jesus literally rose from the dead. The tomb is empty, right? John is like, no, it's a spiritual thing. You know, 
it was springtime and the flowers started to come out and the apostles said, we've got to have hope. And then Jesus appeared to them in a spiritual way within their hearts. And they were encouraged by his new life. Are they going to come to the same theological orthodox conclusions? No, they're going to be radically different. Radically different. Now, as an Anglican, if you want to know who's right, by the way, it should be obvious, if you want to know who's right and you go to the fathers, are both going to be acceptable according to the fathers? Nope. They're all going to agree with Joe. Do you, do you see the application there? Okay. So sometimes even the fathers disagree, and I think that that is also intentional by God. God is saying, you know, look, I mean, you, you know, I, I remember people who come to me and have said, now wait a minute, in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, when Jesus celebrates the Last Supper, it's the Passover meal. Okay? Um, and in John, when Jesus dies on the cross, the lambs are being slaughtered for the Passover meal that night. Well, who's right? Well, it, to me, it's not that one's right, you know, Matthew, Mark, and Luke are right, and John got it wrong, or John is right, and Matthew, Mark, and Luke are wrong. I don't think that's, that's true. But nor am I going to waste my time writing books like many people have to try to reconcile those two things. John is following a different calendar, and, you know, when you line it up this way, and you, you, know, you move this over here and balance that, you, you can see that they line up. I say, you know, who, who cares? What's being revealed through Scripture is that Jesus, when he institutes the Last Supper, he is saying, I am your Passover. And this bread and this wine, you're not going to do this once a year. You're going to do this at least every Sunday, right? And you are going to partake of Passover, which, by the way, Passover, first and foremost, is not passing over from Egypt and slavery to the wilderness through the Red Sea. What's Passover first and foremost? Passing over the homes of the Jews and not killing their firstborn. Being spared of death. And so Jesus is saying, when you partake of this bread and this wine, you're partaking of my death, and in doing so, you shall be spared death. Now all of a sudden, boy, that really plugs into John chapter 6, by the way. Right? Okay? Um, and so what, but John is saying what? Jesus is on the cross. He's dying as the lambs are being slaughtered. John is proclaiming as loud as he can to look at Jesus on the cross and behold the Lamb of God that taketh away the sin of the world. You see? Right? So, you know, trying to reconcile them, I, I don't waste my time with that. What I say is, look, maybe you can come up with a way of reconciling it. And that's kind of interesting, I guess. But for me, the infallible, indefectible truth is that Jesus is our Passover and partaking in the Lord's Supper is partaking in the truth of the Passover and that Jesus is also the one true sacrifice who takes away the sin of the world. That's the infallible truth. Okay, um, And so that's how an, an Anglican would look at it. Has that touched on your question? Okay. <laughs> All right, we now have to move into today's, um, 
today's uh, uh, teaching. Okay. Um, now, there are people who would give different definitions. Uh, uh, just If you just pass that out. Different definitions of these. This is how I'm going to use these. Okay. Um, and that is the definition of the word Catholic. Big C and small c. There's a lot of confusion about this. Okay. So we got to understand it. Okay. Let's start on the bottom up. Catholic with a small c. Catholic with a small c. When you see Catholic with a small c, it's referring to the universal Christian church throughout the world comprised of all Christian traditions and denominations. Now, what's the difference between a tradition and a denomination? We'll find out later today, so don't worry about that right now. But basically, Catholic with a small c means all Christians, okay, throughout the world. They belong to the Christian church, the universal church. So if you meet a Methodist, do they belong to the small c Catholic church? Yes. You meet a Presbyterian, do they belong to the small c Catholic church? Yes. You meet a, uh, a Roman Catholic, do they belong to the small c Catholic church? Yes. You meet a uh, Mormon. Do they belong to the small C Catholic Church? No. Okay, because Mormons uh, believe a completely different faith than the Christian faith. Okay, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are three distinct gods. Not three distinct persons only, but gods. Okay, and so we don't recognize their baptism. Or, okay, but... Roman Catholics, Eastern Orthodox, Anglican, Lutheran, Methodist, Presbyterian, Baptists, Congregationalists, okay? Every individual belongs to the Christian church, okay? Who's in Christ, okay? Small c Catholic just means the Christian church throughout the world, okay? Now, let's go into the most com move up one. This is the most commonly used definition for Catholic with a big, big C. Meaning that particular communion of the once undivided Catholic Church who are in full communion with the Bishop of Rome. In other words, the Roman Catholic Church. Someone will say, um, oh, guess what? Uh, I visited a Catholic Church the other day, Father Michael. Right? What do they really mean when they say that? They mean they went to a Roman Catholic church. That's right, okay? Um, however, a lot of people simply use Big C Catholic to mean the Roman Catholic church, okay? Um, but <clears throat> uh, that's a bit misleading, and we'll get into why. Now go to the very top. The first definition of Catholic with a Big C refers to the historic church. It refers to the undivided church of the first Christian millennium. Okay, now that's a bit simplistic. There's minor divisions before that, but we, we have to be a little bit generic here, okay? So Big C Catholic Church is referring to the historic church, the undivided church of the first Christian millennium. Was the undivided Catholic church, the historic church of the first Christian millennium, ever called the Roman Catholic Church? No. 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 It was simply called the Catholic Church, 
Okay, Was that church fully under the jurisdiction of the Bishop of Rome? No. He never held jurisdiction over that part of the Big C Catholic Church that was in the East. He didn't hold it over that part which we trace our heritage back in the Celtic lands for the first seven and a half centuries. And even then, it took several more centuries for his jurisdiction over the Catholic Church in that realm to solidify. Okay? Uh, It was the Catholic Church, the historic Catholic Church. So Big C Catholic refers to the undivided Catholic Church of the first Christian millennium. The Catholic Church was united in the one canon of Holy Scripture. Okay? So, how many canons of Holy Scripture were there in the undivided church of the first Christian millennium? One, right? It wasn't like they went around saying, oh, do you, do you have Father Michael's version of the Bible? Or do you have the Catholic version of the Bible? Or do you have the new one put out by the Presbyterian Church USA? Right? There was the canon of Scripture developed within that early first part of it and was solidified um, in the mid-fourth century, the 300s, the canon of the New Testament. Um, But there was one canon of Holy Scripture. So wherever you were in the big C historic Catholic Church of the first Christian millennium, whether you were in Constantinople or you were in Rome or you were in Canterbury or you were in Gaul or you were in Prussia, Wherever you were in India, wherever you were, there was one canon of Holy Scripture. Okay. Next, there was the one sacramental life with, with, that's supposed to be an emphasis, not and emphasis, with an emphasis on holy baptism and holy communion. So in the once undivided Catholic Church with a big C of the first Christian millennium, there was only one sacramental life. Okay? It wasn't like, you know, when people say, um, you know, uh, how, many, how many sacraments, uh, uh, how many Anglican sacraments are there? There aren't any Anglican sacraments. They're just the sacraments of the Catholic Church. Right? There aren't Roman Catholic sacraments. There's the sacraments of the historic Catholic Church. Okay? Um, And so uh, there was one sacramental life. So whether you were in Constantinople, Rome, Canterbury, Iona, uh, in the highlands of Scotland, whether you were in Gaul or Prussia or the Orient, wherever you were, there was one sacramental life. So you can see what, despite many um, differences locally, you can see some of the things that united the once undivided church. There was one canon of scripture, and there was one sacramental life. So if Sandra goes back in time, and she is in Iona one day, and then travels to Rome the next day, is there a different sacramental life? No, same sacramental life. Okay. Yes, true. Um, There was the one faith grounded in Holy Scripture and articulated in the universal creeds and the faith decrees of the ecumenical councils. Right? So, how many faiths were there? One. What a novel idea. One faith. That's why as Anglicans, there is no such thing really as the Anglican faith. 
we hold the Catholic faith, the faith of the undivided big C Catholic Church, the faith of the undivided Catholic Church, not the Roman Catholic faith, right? The Catholic faith, the faith that's grounded in Holy Scripture and articulated in the creeds and the ecumenical councils of that undivided church. We don't have Anglican sacraments. We have the sacraments of the undivided church. We do, there's no such thing technically as Anglican ministry. I'm a priest of the Catholic Church who ministers in the Anglican communion. Right? If, we have, if we have Anglican sacraments or Anglican faith or Anglican ministry, then we've created something. It's a novelty. It's an innovation. It's ours. We have received these things, Bob. Well, that's a, we're going to get into that when we get into the history. But seven, though in Anglicanism there's an emphasis on the first four, and for Rome there's 21, but essentially seven, and then it's a matter of emphasis. Okay. That was, um, it, it being mandatory was something that developed uh, later. I mean, certainly confessing is mandatory, right? Um, but the idea that you have to go to confession and receive absolution is a canonical in, impediment. In other words, it's something that the church, their church requires of, of their people. But it, for us, uh, it's something that is for the well-being of our spiritual life. It's a canonical development, as far as I know, kind of like celibacy. It's you, you know, it may have its basis in in places, but to say that you must go to receive absolution that way, or you know, you can't really be forgiven, or you're in mortal sin if you don't do it at least once a year, is not something that is really clearly scriptural. Um, however, having said that, I almost wish that for us it was mandatory because it's for the well-being of every soul. And the grace and the power of confession is so healing and freeing. And, you know, but... Um, in the Orthodox Church, it's mandatory. Because I know that um, many Orthodox Catholics don't rarely take communion. Right, unless they go to it. I think it's mandatory canonically, again. That would be an interesting distinction to ask in the Orthodox Church do you think that it's a matter of God's revelation through the scripture that someone has to go every so often? Uh, or do you see it as a canonical impediment? Do you, do you know, Paulina? Not about the Orthodox, but in the Catholic, Roman Catholic, of course, and the more Orthodox, especially the rest. We mm-hmm. have any slight sin, and you want to take communion, there's no way you can take communion unless you confess before. Yeah. Right, right. Yeah. Where for us, if you read the HTAC news I'm putting out because it covers the next couple of months, including Lent, start of Lent, there's a whole paragraph about this thick as to why it's a real good idea to go to confession. And that's where it would be slightly different as far as mandatory or not. Yeah, 
and we're, we're going to talk about the other sacraments, but I think in particular it's good to practice um, uh, holy confession, private confession, sacramental confession, as it's sometimes called, in Advent and in Lent. Those are two particular good times. And then if you really are struggling with something grievous, uh, you know, to come at those times to, to confession. Uh, but I do think it's a very powerful thing. Um, so one faith... And then the one apostolic ministry, bishops, priests, and deacons ordained by bishops going back to the apostles who themselves received the gift of ordination from Christ Jesus himself. So if you go back in time, okay, uh, how many different ordained ministries were there? There was one, the apostolic ministry of bishop, priests, and deacons ordained by bishops going back to Christ and the apostles. How many faiths were there? One. How many sacramental lives were there? One. How many canons of scripture? One. So, for example, if you were to go back in time to the year 1054, July 15th, the day before the Great Schism, okay? I feel like Mr. Rogers. (laughs) Uh, um, If you go back in time, so let's say Praveen goes back in time to before the Great Schism, and he gets out, and let's say he's a, a, a generic Protestant Christian. And he says, look, I, I, I want to go to church, but I, I don't want to go to a, you know, a place that has priests. I don't want you know, a Catholic priest ministering to me. I want uh, you know, a Protestant minister. Where in the world, let's say I'm a man from that age, where in the world can I send him? Nowhere. In fact, that's actually true right up until the time of the Protestant Reformation in, in the early 1500s. There is nowhere for three-quarters of Christian history for Praveen to go in the world where the apostolic ministry is not present because there was one ordained ministry, bishops, priests, and deacons, ordained by bishops, going back to Christ and the apostles. Okay, um, One ordained ministry. So there wasn't a Methodist ministry and an Anglican ministry and a Presbyterian ministry or, or that one ministry, one ordained ministry. That's why to this day, if uh, Praveen is a priest in the Roman Catholic Church and he wants to, be, he wants to serve in Anglicanism, does he get reordained as an Anglican priest? No. His orders get received by the bishop and he gets licensed to live out his priesthood in the Anglican church because we recognize that he's already a priest of the Catholic church because there's only one ministry. Let's say that um, Chris is a Methodist, a Presbyterian pastor and he wants to become a priest and serve in Anglicanism. Does he get ordained? Yes. Yes. Okay. So there was only one ordained ministry. Okay, Praveen gets in his time machine, goes back now, and he gets out and he says, now I want to go to worship on Sunday, but I don't believe in the sacraments. You, you know, I think they're symbolic. So I don't care if someone's maybe getting baptized or something, but I don't want Holy Communion. I just want to go somewhere and just praise God and hear testimonies, and, and so forth. Where in the world can I send him? The foyer. <laughs> yeah. Very good. 
Nowhere in the world can I send him. Why? Because there's one sacramental life. And the Mass, was, or the Divine Liturgy, as it was called in the East, was celebrated in every church, every Sunday, going all the way back to Christ and the Apostles. There's nowhere for him to go where he's not going to find the Mass or the Divine Liturgy or the Lord's Supper, whatever you want to call it, being presided over by a bishop or a priest. And where they don't believe that you are partaking in Christ. There's nowhere in the world for him to go. Okay? Um, same thing if he goes, well, I don't, want, you know, I don't believe everything that's in the creeds you know, or the ancient councils. I want to go somewhere where you know, I can profess who Jesus is to me. Where can he go? Again, nowhere. Do you see the point? That the historic undivided Catholic Church was united, not in that the Pope was the head of the church, because historically it's not true. Not in that the whole church spoke Latin, because historically it's not true. It was united in that there was one canon of scripture, one faith, particularly articulated later in the creeds and in the councils of the church, one sacramental life with a great emphasis on baptism, being born again in Christ, and then having that new life nourished uh, and nurtured in Holy Communion, and one apostolic ministry. Now, could you imagine in the church historically today, if despite differences, right? Some are saying the Mass has to be only in Latin and others saying, no, it should be in the vernacular. And some saying, oh, you know, priests should have to be celibate. No, priests should be allowed to be married if they want. Um, uh, you can't use contraception. You know, you, uh, no, we think that a husband and wife should be able to prayerfully discern when to use contraception or not. If those were all the big disputes, right, Maybe even the dispute over the ordination of women, right? But at least the church still had one canon of scripture, one faith articulated in the creeds and the councils, one sacramental life, and one apostolic ministry. We might not all be in the same pew, but we'd all be in the same church. Exactly my point, which is why I say that I'm willing to discuss anything under the sun as long as we discuss it as the body of Christ and no one can innovate, no matter how right you think you are, no one can move ahead from the rest of the body because every time you innovate, the chance of the church being reunited becomes less and less and less and less and less. And so that's why the Anglican principle, and we're hopefully going to get to this today, was that all Christian communions should return to the faith and order of the undivided church. And then we can look at everything from there. We can discuss papal infallibility. We can discuss papal claims to jurisdiction over the whole church. We can discuss purgatory. We can discuss transubstantiation. We can discuss clerical celibacy being required. We can discuss whether um, uh, contraception. We can discuss, uh, you know, the ordination of women. You can discuss anything you want, but we would do so as the body of Christ. And no one part of the body of Christ would say to the other, I don't need you, and just move on. 
because I'm so right and you're so wrong that I'm going to start innovating it now. Because every time one part of the church innovates, the chance of reconciliation taking place, which, by the way, we always want Jesus to answer our prayers. How about answering his prayer? He had one prayer. John, I think, chapter 17, that we be one. And we can't even answer his one request. Um, But I don't think it's by everyone becoming Roman Catholic or everyone becoming Eastern Orthodox or everyone becoming Anglican or everyone finally coming to their senses and listening to Father Michael McKinnon or General Convention or the Southern Baptist Convention or everyone going off and, you know. I think what we need to do is all return to the faith, order, and practice of the undivided Catholic Church. And then we can discern things together as the body of Christ. I'd actually probably be more of a liberal in that church because I'm pretty open to discussing almost anything. As long as I didn't think the church would be ripped apart by someone saying, yeah, that is a good idea. They won't do it, so we will. Right? Um, But you go back to the undivided church. Bob? When you're... You know, it's very difficult because there has always been schism or schism, depending on your pronunciation. Um, uh, There's always been schism in the church. And so in one sense, it's um, a bit idealistic to ever speak of an undivided church. But in another very real sense, historically, the church, despite many differences in culture, society, uh, application of the faith, um, liturgical expression, language, etc., theological emphasis, there really was an undivided church of the first Christian millennium. And so I would say, when I am speaking of the undivided Catholic church, I'm speaking of the historic church of the first Christian millennium that had, east and west, had one canon of scripture, one faith, one sacramental life, and one apostolic ministry, you know. And that's my primary reason for not being in, in, in favor of the ordination of women as priests and bishops, okay, is that I, my argument is an ecclesiological argument. I would say that no one has the authority in and of themselves to make this innovation, even if it's a good idea. What I would say is, look, the priesthood doesn't belong to us. The priesthood belongs to whom? Right, to Jesus and the undivided church. So if we innovate something that deals with the priesthood, then what we're saying is there is an Anglican priesthood, right? But if the priesthood belongs to the whole, then we're not free. It goes back to that cottage example I used. If Sandra and I and Praveen all own a cottage, we all own it 100%. And I'm not free to tear out the fieldstone fireplace and put in a wood-burning stove that's more efficient, even though it's a good idea, if the two of them say no. And if I do, I'm going to fracture the covenant between us. Okay? That's the ecclesiological argument. And then if you ask, well, but Father Michael, we know that 
you love Deacon Rhonda and Deacon Susie, what about that? And I would say there's clear evidence both from Scripture and the undivided church that weren't women served as deacons. So that you can make the, the argument for from both Scripture and, and, and the patristic writings. But the other, I would say, you have to discern as the body of Christ. And we should first work on answering Jesus' prayer before we worry about what we can change. Because if nothing changes from now to the second of coming of Christ, guess what we still already have? Everything we need. Everything we need. We have the love of the Father. We have redemption in Jesus Christ. We have the gift of the Holy Spirit. We have the canon of Scripture. We have the sacramental life of the church. We have fellowship in the church. We have praise and thanksgiving. We have confession and, you know, and forgiveness and on and on and on. I do have to keep going. Is it your hand? Okay. Yeah. There was slavery. Yeah. People owned other people. Right. Is that a parallel in some way? I mean, there were, in other words, there were societal norms. Yeah. And maybe it was the societal yeah. norm that yeah. women were not ordained as priests, yeah. just like it was the societal norm that some people were owned by other people. Yeah. I would say, as far as the argument of, you know, what about societal norms, that if we were a reunited church, and we wanted to discuss the ordination of women, that would be something that we as a body would discern. Is the only reason that society couldn't grasp that. But then you would also have to grapple with things that Jesus did many things contrary to his culture and society. In fact, enough to get him crucified and rejected by his own people. And he did not call women to serve as, the, as apostles. So then you have to grapple with those two things. And I would say, Joan, good question, let's grapple with it. But if you and I decide that we're right and they're all wrong, we don't have the right to divide the body of Christ over it until God speaks through the church. Now, as far as the slavery issue, that goes back to something that we dealt with last last session, if you remember the development of doctrine within the canon of Scripture is different than something. And when we talk about slavery as an institution, it is not clearly held up by, I mean, Paul says, if you can get your freedom, get your freedom. And he says to the, the, the masters, you have no right to treat your slaves wrongly because you're equal in Christ. Okay, And he says to others, you should set them free. But it also what they were dealing with in, in that day and age, too, is something very different than what we were dealing with in the Civil War in the, in the United States, too, mm-hmm. where we were saying some people are less than human. Back then, it was also an institution that if, um, uh, God forbid, if uh, I were to die back in that culture, what is likely to happen to Christine and the girls? Well, they could die, or they'd have to go into prostitution, or maybe someone might have mercy on them and take them in. But chances are what Christine would have to do is basically uh, get herself um, attached to a household as a servant. Really what the Bible calls as slavery 
Now, we're not talking about the Egyptian slavery again. I'm talking about in Paul's time is more of what we would understand as in the early colonialism as indentured servants. And they also had polygamy. Right, and we talked about that last time too. There's a difference about polygamy though. If you remember from last time, we move from one man, one woman into the falsehood of polygamy and then we move out of that into one man, one woman and then in the New Testament, we get the fullness of, of the revelation as mar- holy matrimony being sacramental, right? So there is development, but within the canon of Scripture. That's different than development of doctrine today by the church in opposition to Scripture. Okay? All right. I'm going to have to get in, in back into this, okay? So, um, that's Catholic with a, a big C, Okay, you're referring to the undivided church that was united in ministry, faith, sacraments, and scripture. Catholic with a big C definition too are those communions or fellowships of the once undivided Catholic church who have maintained the four elements mentioned above, okay, the one canon of scripture, the one sacramental life, the one apostolic order of ministry, and the one creedal faith, okay, mentioned above, and which together comprise the once undivided Catholic Church. That would be Anglicanism, Eastern Orthodoxy, and Roman Catholicism, okay? Those three, and there are some smaller bodies, but we don't have time to get into that. There are some Lutherans actually in Scandinavia that have maintained all four uh, as well. Um, there's a body called over in Europe called the Old Catholic Communion, um, the Polish National Catholic Church. So there are some smaller bodies, but we don't have time, sadly, to get into all of that. Okay, so essentially there are three fellowships or communions in the world today that have maintained the one order of ministry, bishops, priests, and deacons ordained by bishops going back to Christ and the apostles, the one sacramental life, the one creedal faith. Now, one of those communions has added some things to the faith, by the way, Rome, okay? But they have the essentials there. And then the one, what am I missing? Canon of Scripture. Shame on me. Okay? We have maintained uh, these things. And so we are, as Anglicans... Catholic with a big C. We are heirs just as much as Rome in the Eastern Orthodox Church of the undivided Catholic Church. So we're Catholic with a small C. We're Catholic with a big C. And this is why in our dialogue with both Rome and Constantinople, we have always made the argument that Henry VIII did not start a new church and that we have no faith of our own, or sacraments of our own, or orders of ministry of our own, or scriptures of our own. We hold the faith, scriptures, sacraments, creeds, councils, orders of ministry, worship of the undivided Catholic Church. And that's why Anglicanism, after the English Reformation, never innovated. And you remember we did this a little bit last week, tell me, uh, last month. Tell me if it's an innovation or a return to the faith, practice, and order of the early church. We said at the time of the English Reformation that the Bishop of Rome has no jurisdiction 
over the Catholic Church in the realm of England. Is that an innovation or a return to the practice of the early church? It's a return. We said the Mass will be in the language of the people, not necessarily in Latin. Is that an innovation or a return? It's a return. We said that clergy can marry. Is that an innovation or a return? It's a return. We said that the people should receive both the body and blood of Jesus. Is that an innovation or a return? Return. We said that while we reject transubstantiation as a philosophical explanation of how Jesus is present, we still maintain that Christ Jesus is present in the Holy Eucharist. Was that an innovation or a return? Return. A return. We said that all bishops are equal in the College of Bishops. Was that an innovation or a return? return? It was a return. So, in fact, far from starting a new church, we return the Catholic Church in the realm of England to the faith and order and practice of the undivided Catholic Church. And this is why when you get to John Jewell, you'll see that he makes the argument that we're more Catholic than the Roman Catholics are because they hold certain doctrines that by definition are not Catholic. That is, they're not both biblical and received by the whole church, East and West. Okay, so we are Catholic with a big C. don't want to say he started a new church. How do you want to relate those two to each other? I would say several things, and we're going to do a whole class in this. But quickly, what I would say is that without a doubt, um, there wouldn't have been a reformation of the church in England, which is different than starting a new church, because we maintain the same orders of ministry, sacraments, faith and uh, scriptures of, of the church in every age, there would not have been a reformation in England in that particular part of Christ's Holy Catholic Church without Henry VIII. Absolutely, he was paramount to it. But I would also say that Henry VIII never could have carried off a reformation of the church if the people weren't ready for a reformation in the church, if the people weren't already hungering for it. So he definitely had a huge impact, a huge impact on, um, on the Reformation occurring, okay? But he did not start a new church. He never saw himself as having started a new church, nor did the Anglican church in that age ever see themselves as starting something new, okay? But without him, under those circumstances, it wouldn't have happened. Now, what happened was Henry married himself a woman. He was off to a good start. Um, and uh, uh, she wasn't having boys. Well, Henry, being the moron that he was, thought that this was her fault, okay, because he didn't benefit from the Internet to look it up. Why is it that I'm not having boys? Oh, because I'm not having boys, right. Okay, so he thought it was her fault. So he wanted to uh, divorce her, okay? Um, now, back then, divorcing your wife was a no-no. Unless you were a king, then it was quite easy, actually. You just asked the pope, and the pope said, yeah, okay, and would grant you an annulment, 
Okay. Now, it was all very corrupt. Okay. Henry made a big mistake, however. The Pope at this time was the cap, uh, captive of France. Okay. Henry married a relative of the King of France. His niece or his aunt? His aunt, I think, yeah. Okay, his aunt. So when Henry called up the Pope, hey, Pope, do me a favor. Well, I mean, really, but do me a favor here. Grant me one of those annulment things, right, so I can get rid of this woman and marry this next woman, you, you know, and so that I can, you know, get a woman who can produce me a boy, right? The Pope said, sure, only one problem. <laughs> the king won't let me give you an annulment, the king of France, Okay, thus, you know, the, the problem. Had that not been the case, the, the Pope would have granted him the annulment. wouldn't have been an issue. So, very corrupt. The, the medieval church is really not our best time. <laughs> it really was uh, a, a very corrupt church. What's the difference between that and today is everyone wants power. Yeah, well, I mean, it's true. It's true. You know, the church is a divine institution in sinful hands. And, um, you know, when people say, well, I don't go to church anymore because the priests are abusing little kids, or I don't go to church anymore because uh, there's only hypocrites there, or I don't go to church anymore because of the, you know. And I think, really, but what has Christ done to you? You, you, you know, I, I mean, I, I don't, it, it's hard to understand that. Oh yeah, no, they all thought that back then. Yeah, everyone thought that. Yeah, no, that 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 that's true. That's true. My understanding was that he was also, in, in his own right, somewhat of a theologian. That he wasn't just talking about divorce, but that he actually was quite knowledgeable about the church. I mean, I I I think that there is some some truth to that, but I don't think Henry ever would have caused the English Reformation if it wasn't for the whole divorce matter. Yeah, I I think that uh, ultimately that that resulted in it. But just as God has done throughout time, God worked good through the mess created through historical circumstances that are not good. Um, and so, okay, so now um, we're going to go into uh, the topic for today, are we Catholic, are we Reformed? First of all, the term Anglican Church, okay, a lot of people say, well, you may have not created a new church, but you, you know, you certainly weren't called Anglican, the Anglican Church until the English Reformation, not true. The Magna Carta refers to the Catholic Church in the realm of England as the Ecclesia Anglicana, the Anglican Church. Okay? It was identified, the Catholic Church in that realm had been identified as the Anglican Church, the Ecclesia Anglicana, as early as the 1200s. Okay? So, you know, a few centuries even before this happened, okay? All right. Here's a uh, 
something that ties into our understanding of that all Christian denominations and traditions, etc., should return to the principles of unity exemplified by the undivided church and then move forward together. This is a quote, um, um, it's uh, the preface to what's known as the Lambeth Quadrilateral. Okay, the Lambeth Quadrilateral articulates the four things, basically, that we have been articulating today that united the undivided Catholic Church regardless of where it was in the world. And this was a preface to it. If, for those of you who have a 79 um, Book of Common Prayer on your bookshelves at home, um, you can look on page 877 and you'll see this quote. Page 877 in the so-called 1979 Book of Common Prayer. I call it the Book of Alternative Services, but that's okay. That's just me. All right. So this is the Anglican statement there. It says, furthermore, and this, by the way, I'll put all on the internet for you, okay? So you don't have to take down this quote, all right? Furthermore, we do hereby affirm that the Christian unity can be restored only by the return of all Christian communions to the principles of unity exemplified by the undivided Catholic Church during the first ages of its existence. In other words, if you want to heal the body of Christ, Rome has to surrender anything that's particular to it. Presbyterians, anything that's particular to it. Okay, Lutherans, anything that's particular to it. And we all go back to when we were all one. And then we discern all these things together. So furthermore, we do hereby affirm that the Christian unity can be restored only by the return of all Christian communions to the principles of unity exemplified by the undivided Catholic Church during the first ages of its existence. Okay? So the first thing we want to do, the only way, that, what Anglicans are saying here, is the only way there's ever going to be unity in the church is for us to all go back to when we were in agreement. One ordained ministry, one faith, uh, uh, one sacramental life, one canon of scripture. Otherwise, it's not going to work. Yeah, exactly. Which principles we believe to be the substantial deposit of Christian faith and order committed by Christ and his apostles to the church unto the end of the world. This was an Anglican statement. So not until General Convention decides that it can be changed. Okay? I, I remember um, when Anglicans in the United States, the Episcopal Church rather, wanted to enter into communion with the ELCA, the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America. They don't have the historic succession as we do. Bishops, priests, and deacons ordained by bishops going back to Christ and the apostles. In fact, they, their understanding of the diaconate was uh, radically different. It was a lay order, almost similar to the vestry. Okay, and They had bishops and pastors, and even a bishop was just for a term of office, he was really just a, a pastor who did this function for a time. So 
But we agreed on the other things, the canon of scripture, the creeds, and the sacraments. But where we differed was in apostolic succession. So what they said was, at general convention, was, well, we want to enter into full communion with the ELCA. So people like me said, look, I want to too. We're so close, it's oh, killing me. But we can't compromise the essentials to do it. Right? And so what we need to do is work together on a mutual understanding of apostolic succession. Okay? And in some ways, the Lutherans had something to offer us. They had a real emphasis on apostolic succession as being the succession of the apostolic faith coming down, and that's a good thing too. And so you can really work together to come to a fuller understanding even of apostolic succession. Well, what General Convention did was they said, what I just read to you, we are going to temporarily suspend our commitment to this in order to enter into full communion with them, and then we will reactivate it. That's like my saying to, uh, uh, to uh, some woman named Jezebel, I'm going to temporarily suspend my marital vows to Christine so that we can enter into relations, and then once it's done, I will reactivate my marital vows to Christine. This is being recorded. I know! I want the world to know how absurd it was. Now, I understand their intent. Their intent was that they had Lutherans who said, we are not going to all be reordained because it implies that somehow we're invalid. So we're not going to have these Episcopal bishops come and lay hands on us just so we can be in the apostolic succession. We are valid ministers already. And from their point of view, I can understand that. That would be hard, right? Um, uh, and what they were saying for people like me on the other side saying, no, look, I want unity too, but we can't compromise the essentials. They have to be ordained in the fullness of the apostolic succession, at least for the sense of assurance, even if we don't want to say you're being newly ordained, we'll say you're being conditionally ordained or something, to make up what's lacking, if anything, or something like that, right? I'll bend as far as I can, right? But what they said is, Michael, don't worry. What we're going to do is just accept everyone, and but every future... Lutheran bishop will be ordained by three Lutheran and three Episcopal bishops. So eventually, all of their bishops will end up being in the apostolic succession, and then all of their people that they ordain will be in the apostolic succession, and eventually, they'll get back into the groove, and they'll be in the apostolic succession, and people who were opposed from the Lutheran side to the apostolic succession and people opposed on our side, like you, Michael, to just accepting them in will be dead by then. And there'll be no one who really is threatened by it because they'll have it. And then the Lutherans will say, we've always thought it was a good idea because they have it. You'll be dead. You won't be worried about it anymore, Michael. And there'll be greater unity in the church. You know, the old, the end justifies the means. It's all good. It's all good. <laughs> right? What happens? They do it. They decide to do it. And then the Lutherans 
didn't start having at every ordination of bishops uh, bishops in the apostolic succession. There were some that refused, and the Episcopalians said, well, okay, okay. And they still have this full communion. So what are we saying? What we're saying is we don't really hold to the Catholic order of ministry. We've created our own. Then that threatens our whole claim to Catholicity. And when I was saying stuff like this on the floor of convention, priests, bishops, other laity looked at me and what are you talking about? Because people weren't educated in this stuff. And this is why it's so important to offer a course like this. Now I'm going to read you the full quote because it goes on. So furthermore, we do hereby affirm that the Christian unity can be restored only by the return of all Christian communions to the principles of unity exemplified by the undivided Catholic Church during the first ages of its existence, which principles we believe to be the substantial deposit of Christian faith and order committed by Christ and his apostles to the church unto the end of the world. And then get ready for this. And therefore incapable of compromise or surrender by those who have been ordained to be its stewards and trustees for the common and equal benefit of all. Incapable. But I'd like to make a motion that we temporarily compromise and suspend that which is uncompromisable and unsuspendable. I mean, mind-boggling. Okay? But if I could fit that whole quote on my license plate, I would. I'd buy a vanity plate. Because to me, that paragraph sums up why I'm an Anglican. Because we are the Bible Catholics, and we hold to the scriptures, faith, sacraments, and orders of ministry of the undivided Catholic Church. That you could find on page 877 of the 1979 so-called Book of Common Prayer. God's revelation. And yet, when we talk about we got to go back, how are you going to change all that going forward? Yeah. You can't do it. Right. It, well, that's what I mean. Innovation is very... Whenever someone acts unilaterally within a covenant, whether it be marriage or friendship or a partnership in business or in a church, whenever one party acts unilateral from the rest the covenant breaks down. And this is the issue that we have faced in the contemporary church. You know, the contemporary church. That's why I get a little bit tired about the arguments regarding the ordination of women because it usually is buddy's opinion versus buddy's opinion. I really don't care about your opinion even if you agree with me or your opinion. What I want to do is look at it as the body of Christ from the point of view of scripture and the church, you know? Otherwise, it's just, I may give my opinion, Bob may give his, and I may carry three quarters of you, and Bob carries a quarter of you, and, and I, I got, oh, I got more votes than Bob. I mean, who cares? You know what I mean? And that can change. Everything becomes based on what I think. 
Well, yeah. I mean, and, and that's the compromise right now in the ACNA. No I women bishops. Want to discuss how decisions were made in the uh, uh, early church. Early church. Yeah, and we'll get it because we, it wasn't democratic, yeah. from what I understand. It, it wasn't. It was really a matter of it had to be based on scripture and then received by the whole church, east and west. And it was more of a uh, a charismatic movement of the spirit within the church as the body of Christ within scripture but you'll get into that as you read as you read this and we'll talk about that specifically as you read for those who are listening the orthodox church by timothy ware joan this is a really sincere question do you have any hope for the reunification of the church returning to um the undivided church of the of the, the historic church only the before, the, before the before the second coming, do you have any hope for that? Yes, but I'm an optimist. I I actually believe, I <laughs> I I I actually believe. First of all, I think we were headed that way in the 1970s. Um, uh, Michael Ramsey, who was Archbishop of Canterbury in the late 60s and early 70s believe that the unity of the church east and west would first be restored not by the reconciliation of Constantinople and Rome, but by the um, reconciliation of Constantinople and Canterbury. And he really believed that the argument was that, look, both of us are non-papal communions of the once undivided Catholic Church. And we, uh, we hold, although there's differences in our application, we hold essentially the same faith, creeds, sacraments, ministry, scripture, um, as the undivided church together. And we can have that. And so the Orthodox started to say, okay, so your claim is that you have no faith of your own, you have no sacraments, that you have that of the undivided Catholic church. Yes. And what happened was that in... Um, Michael Ramsey, if you read his journals, he was woken up in the middle of the night because England was ahead of us in time and was told that the 1976 General Convention in the Episcopal Church had made the decision that women could be priests. And he cried and he put in his journal that the reason he cried wasn't that he was necessarily against it. He wasn't actually for it, but he wasn't necessarily... He cried because he said we have just surrendered our claim to Catholicity because if you are Catholic, you can't act that way. And he knew that the Orthodox are going to go, wait a minute, we're confused. If the priesthood doesn't belong to you, it belongs to all of us, how can you do this? You know, and, so, and that's why he cried. But we were actually very close, I believe, to the union of East and West. And what I believe we have sacrificed for the sake of, of discerning issues and then acting on them unilaterally is the prayer of Jesus that we be one. Is the Anglican Church ordaining women? The, um, there's parts that do and there's parts that don't. And it was an issue that they said in all of our coming together that we, if we had to settle that first, um, we would never come together to take this stand in North America. So... What they decided to do was to agree on everything um, except that, and they said, we will work on that together and look at that together. But the compromise was, 
is that no bishop has to do it, and um, women could not be bishops in the church. That way, while we're discerning this together, the apostolic succession is, is maintained. No, but that was good enough for them in that they have, where they had closed off dialogue with the Episcopal Church, they've opened up dialogue with us. So they are talking to us. I need to keep, uh, keep moving because I got all those pages, okay? And we're through here. <laughs> That's it, okay? So, all right. I, I don't know, uh, maybe, but then that means reworking the whole schedule. It becomes tough. So let me just keep rolling, and we'll, we'll see. And we'll, we'll take a break, a five-minute stretch at 2 o'clock. Someone remind me. Okay. Since the time of the English Reformation, the great theological writers of the Anglican tradition have, in each subsequent generation, striven to return the Church of England and those in communion with her, to the faith and order of the undivided Catholic Church. Is everyone with me so far? This is me, by the way. I wrote this, so um, I'm just using my own notes. So since the time of the English Reformation, the great theological writers of the Anglican tradition have, in each subsequent generation, striven to return the Church of England and those in communion with her to the faith and order of the most primitive church, or the undivided Catholic Church. The Holy Bible and the writings of the ancient fathers have been the hallmarks of post-Reformation Anglican theology. Okay, um, And if you look at the ordinal, the ordination rites of the English Reformation, it, it states that, you know, it says, as the Holy Scriptures and, and the early writers state, da-da-da-da. In other words, that's our appeal. First to Scripture and then to the patristic writings. And then here's, uh, Anglicanism claims no faith particular to its own tradition. It bugs me nutty that in the um, theological statement of the ACNA, which cannot be changed, and I'm glad that it cannot be changed, because if it was always up for a vote, we'd end up back in the same place as we are. They make a reference to, aposto- uh, to Anglican faith. Technically, there's no such animal, okay? We don't have a faith of our own as Anglicans. We hold the Catholic faith, okay? So Anglicanism claims no faith particular to its own tradition. Rather, it proclaims the Catholic faith of the ancient church or the undivided church, the church of antiquity. Quote, The Anglican Communion was described by the Lambeth Conference of 1930, that is the gathering of all bishops throughout the world, Anglican bishops throughout the world. But again, there's no such thing as an Anglican bishop, but Catholic bishops serving in Anglicanism. Okay, even I find it hard to speak that way, okay? Quote, a fellowship within the one holy Catholic and apostolic church. So our claim is that we are a fellowship, a branch, for a lack of a better word. Some people don't like that word, okay, because it has some ecclesiological problems. But we are a fellowship or a branch or a communion of the historic undivided Catholic Church, okay? And we have claimed that. It was articulated clearly by the bishops gathered in Lambeth in 1930. 
that we are a fellowship within the one holy, big C, Catholic and Apostolic Church. The Episcopal Church in the United States is self-defined in its own preamble as, wait till you hear this, <laughs> a constituent member of the Anglican Communion, a fellowship within the one holy Catholic and Apostolic Church, upholding and propagating the historic faith and order as set forth in the Book of Common Prayer. Well, if that were true, we wouldn't have any problems, right? Because what they're saying, we're constituent members of this communion, which is a fellowship within the greater Catholic Church. And what we uphold and what we propagate is not our own teaching, but the historic teaching. Okay. Um, thus, Anglicanism is a reformed Catholicism, a reformed Catholicism, or an evangelical, that is, Bible-based Catholicism. As I have argued, we are the Bible Catholic Church. That's why I choose to be Anglican. I choose to be Anglican, okay? Um, um, this is, sorry, Reformed is Reformed vis-a-vis Roman Catholicism. Yeah, medieval Catholicism, Roman Catholicism. to say that we're Reformed Catholicism would be to say we've Reformed something that we of, say... That's Catholic. That's Catholic. Yeah, no, Reformed, right, that's a good point, Bob. That's a good clarification. So thus Anglicanism is Reformed Catholicism um, or a Bible-based Catholicism. We hold to the Catholic faith and order as it's in the Bible. Okay. Um, this is my favorite way to describe us. We are the Bible Catholic Church. We're not the Roman Catholic Church. We're not even the Anglican Church for all I care. We're the Bible Catholic Church. Well, they wouldn't say they're the Bible Catholic Church. No, they would just say they're a Bible, Bible Church. Okay. Um, we are a living and contemporary expression of the most ancient church, a Catholicism grounded in God's word and that faith received by the whole church before the disunion of East and West which by definition is that which is truly Catholic, okay? Something can't be Catholic and be particular to you, okay? So um, only that which was accepted by the whole church, East and West, as grounded in Scripture, can really claim to be Catholic. That's why when people jokingly say to me, when I say something, and, you know, is that true? They'll say, well, is the Pope Catholic? And I'll say, well... In some things, yes. But like take the filioque in the creed. That was never a Catholic doctrine because it was, it's not clearly scriptural. I would argue that it's not scriptural at all, okay? But it's not clearly scriptural. But it was never accepted as being part of the creed by the whole church east and west. Therefore, it is not Catholic by definition. And to profess a creed with it, in it is not to profess the Catholic creed, but to profess a particular creed. Do you see what, do you follow me? Does everyone get it? Okay. So that's why 
I refuse to say the filioque in the creed because my faith is the Catholic faith. I profess a creed that's been received by the whole church, East and West, as grounded in Holy Scripture, not one that's been accepted only by a part of the church. Okay. All right. Um, you remember this quote that I uh, quoted last time from Lancelot Andrews, one of the 17th century Caroline divines. He says, One canon reduced to writing by God himself, two testaments, that is the old and new, three creeds, that is the Nicene Creed, the Apostles' Creed, and the Creed of St. Athanasius, four general councils, five centuries, and the series of fathers in that period determine the boundary of our faith. In other words, it's not what General Convention says or what the Pope says or what Father Michael McKinnon says or what even Bob Duncan says or Bishop Harvey says or what your mom taught you. Now, if it was my mom that taught you that. Um, I remember one time someone, um, I hope I'm not embarrassing anyone. Um, it, it, well, it probably embarrassed my wife if she was here because she's always late. But um, uh, someone said to me, for to receive communion, when do you have to be at Mass? What's the latest you can come in? And, and of course, the answer is, as long as you're trying to get there, I mean, if you're really seriously trying, you've got a flat tire, you can actually come in and receive communion, right? But I said, well, but if it's because of your fault of your own, the latest you can come in is just before the gospel. You have to hear the gospel proclaimed. And they said, oh, okay, Father, thank you for that. That makes sense. And then I started to walk away, and they said, oh, by the way, Father, what's the source of that? And I said, you know, I was just thinking about that. It's my mother. <laughs> my mother taught me that when I was a kid, and I just never questioned it. If I came to church and was later than the gospel reading, I didn't receive communion that day. You know? But if I made it for the gospel, it was like coming in, the Holy Gospel for the Lord. <laughs> you know? All right. Um, so anyway. <laughs> okay, but that's a, a fantastic quote. Um, so, so far you've had the three quotes. The one that's the preface to the Lambeth Quadrilateral. Furthermore, we do hereby affirm that Christian unity can be restored only by the return of all Christian communions to the principles of unity exemplified by the undivided Catholic Church during the first ages of its existence, etc. And then from the Lambeth, Quadrila uh, Lambeth Conference of 1930, the bishops there proclaiming the communion was, dis uh, they said that the communion is a fellowship within the one holy Catholic and apostolic church. And now this quote by Lancelot Andrews, one of the 17th century, Caroline divined, one canon reduced to writing by God himself, two testaments, three creeds, four councils, five centuries, and the series of fathers in that period determined the boundary of our faith. That's the bond. So we are a patristic church. We are uh, an early Catholic church. That's why we, I would argue that we have so much in common with Eastern Orthodoxy in many ways. Okay. Um, all right, another quote. And this is in the theological statement for the ACNA, so I'm happy about this. They actually make this quote. You ready? The Anglican Communion, Archbishop Jeffrey Fisher wrote, has no peculiar thought, peculiar used in the English way, meaning particular, not, gee, that's peculiar, okay, meaning particular, okay. The Anglican Communion, Archbishop Geoffrey Fisher wrote, has no peculiar, meaning particular, 
thought, practice, creed, or confession of its own. It has only the Catholic faith of the ancient Catholic Church as preserved in the Catholic creeds and maintained in the Catholic and Apostolic Constitution of Christ's Church from the beginning. That is, we don't claim a faith of our own or sacraments of our own or a ministry of our own. We claim the Catholic sacraments, the Catholic canon of Scripture, the Catholic order of ministry. Okay. What's that? That gives us the root itself. Absolutely. Absolutely. That was a quote from Archbishop Jeffrey Fisher, who was an Archbishop of Canterbury, actually, I think in the early 60s. Sorry, Bob, that I'm looking to you, but I... <laughs> yeah, okay. Okay. So, um, and then I, I've never been able to figure out in the quote if this is him continuing to speak or if this was the emerging leaders of the ACNA who say this. And I've tried to figure out by where they put the quotes, but it's very confusing. Maybe you should look at it and tell me. Um, But the quote goes on, and it's either, this is either Duncan and Harvey and Ackerman and others saying this based on Jeffrey Fisher's quote, or this is part B of Jeffrey Fisher's quote. I'm not sure, okay? But it, so I'll give you the first part again. The Anglican Communion has no peculiar thought, practice, creed, or confession of its own. It has only the Catholic faith of the ancient Catholic Church as preserved in the Catholic creeds and maintained in the Catholic and Apostolic Constitution of Christ Church from the beginning. Part B. It may licitly teach. What does licitly mean? Legitimately, legally, okay? It may licitly, legitimately teach as necessary for salvation, nothing but what is read in the Holy Scriptures as God's Word written or may be proved thereby. In other words, we have no faith, order, etc. of our own. We have the Catholic one, but it has to be grounded in what? Scripture. We're the Bible Catholic Church. That's why I love that. That's almost word for word out of the articles of religion. Yeah, yeah, yes, absolutely, which is one of the Anglican formularies. Um, It therefore embraces and affirms such teachings of the ancient fathers and councils of the church as are agreeable to the said scriptures and thus to be counted apostolic. In other words, we hold the Catholic creeds, we hold the Catholic councils, insofar as they're grounded in the scripture, because that's what determines for us today what is apostolic. You remember my teaching from last time? That part of the discernment of what books comprised the canon of the New Testament was that they rightly articulated the apostolic faith, the teaching and preaching of the apostles. But once they were established, they became the canon, the ruler, the measuring uh, unit of what is apostolic from that point until the second coming of Jesus. Okay, so you know what's apostolic because it's biblical, and what is biblical was truly apostolic. So what this quote is saying is that we have nothing peculiar to us as Anglicans. There's no such thing as Anglican faith. There's no such thing as Anglican priests. 
There's no such thing as Anglican sacraments. We hold the Catholic faith, the Catholic sacraments, the Catholic creeds, the Catholic councils, the Catholic ministry, right? But as grounded in Holy Scripture, because that's how we know what is truly apostolic. Everyone with me? Okay. Um, all right, so continuing the quote, the church has no authority to innovate. Wow. There you go. Why? Because innovation is unilateral decision-making. And unilateral decision-making breaks down covenant. And covenant leads to the disunity of the body of Christ. The church has no authority to innovate. It is obliged continually, and particularly in times of renewal or reformation, to return to the faith once delivered to the saints, which is a quote from the letter of Jude to the church in the Bible. The faith once for all delivered to the saints. So in this new reformation of the ACNA, we have no authority to innovate. We have no authority to say, well, you know, we don't like, um, you know, the diaconate because the Episcopal Church had the diaconate. So we're going to get rid of the diaconate. We don't have an authority to innovate. Okay? We can only return to what is clearly established. Okay? So if someone were to say, well, we got in all these problems because of Bishop so-and-so and Bishop so-and-so and Bishop so-and-so. Therefore, the ACNA won't have any bishops. Well, then the ACNA won't be Catholic. Okay, and that will be an innovation. Okay, so they're very clear. Now, being where I am, I, I would say if this is true, if this is true then I, I would say that we can have women as deacons, but... Until there's unity in the church, we cannot have them as priests. But that was the compromise um, uh, for us to come together. Um, by the way, out of 48 bishops in the ACNA, um, eight of them ordained women. None ordained women as bishops because it's not allowed. Eight ordained them as priests. Um, uh, and then there's the, the diaconate, which I'm very, of course, very in favor for, because it's scriptural and it's patristic. So therefore, to them, the ordination of women as priests is more meaningful than the unification of the church. Well, you can make that argument, but uh, just know that in this archdeaconry, we, we, we have women as deacons, but not as priests or bishops. But that's not true in our diocese. Bishop Harvey does ordain women as priests. This is something that he and I disagree on. And, and whenever I say to him, um, Bishop, may, may, may I challenge you on that? He says, well, let me think about that. No! <laughs> and so I say, yes, sir. And uh, so it's something that we disagree on. But um, I, I, I would say, yeah. I would say that based on what we just read, I don't see how you, you get around it. But no. wait, I think someone over here and then... But I don't want to get off on women's ordination, though. If you were to say in that case, well, then, Bishop Harvey, I don't want you over me yeah. as, as my bishop. Then you would no longer be Anglican. You would no longer be Catholic. Well, I would have to, what I'd have to say is, first of all, you should never throw a bishop off because you don't like right. X. You know, It has to be a matter that you feel that the faith or order or your conscience is being compromised. 
But in the ACNA, I, it is allowed, it is permissible for me to say, um, I need to be under a bishop who will not ordain women as, as priests. And I could do that. But Bishop Harvey and I have an understanding that no one, well, the ACNA does, no one is forced to do that. And in our archdeaconry, there isn't. But, but my point is, yeah. you need to be under a bishop to be angry. Oh, Yes. You can't go off and become, yeah, I love when I see signs that say independent Anglican church. Yeah. What's an independent Anglican church? We, we, yeah, you cannot be, that's a, that's a very, yeah, very good point. Where does the distinction come from biblically between what a deacon and a priest can and can't do? Well, that, that would be more of an interpretation, I would say, grounded in Scripture where you, you see deacons, like in Acts of the Apostles, chapter 6, doing particular ministries, um, not focusing on preaching, for example, or teaching. We know from other references to the Lord's Supper that it was the apostles and bishops who presided on, on that. Um, so it would be, but it would be really within that very first apostolic age of what were they seen as doing. And, and they would say, if you read the fathers, they would say, the scriptures allow deacons in particular to minister to the poor, the sick, the hungry, and so forth, but it's not innate to their office to preach or to teach uh, or to consecrate the Eucharist, for example. Um, but yeah, it's, it's very difficult. It's almost like the Holy Trinity where there's a lot of things when we say that has to be in scripture, a lot of it is also looking through the lens of the patristic writings at what has come out of Holy Scripture because there's no clear definition of the Trinity, for example. You, you know, or the, the word Trinity isn't even biblical. You know, it doesn't, it doesn't, it's not. But if you put on the right glasses and read the Scripture, that is the faith that God has revealed through the Scripture. But that, that is where it gets not so black and white. So it's a very good question. And the function of the deacon has been different like throughout church history. And so it gets really crazy because I know some people who will say to me in the ACNA, all right, McKinnon, we agree with you that women can be deacons because it seems that in the scripture, Phoebe was a deacon and it seems that in the early church there were deacons. However, their liturgical function was different than the, than the men. So uh, they shouldn't necessarily be like reading the gospel in, in, the, in the liturgy and that type of thing, but they should have a particular... But, you, you know, my argument would be that a clear function for the diaconate has been in flux throughout, throughout history. And so that becomes a tougher argument to make, I, I think. But it is kind of interesting, though, um, and I, I hope I'm not overstepping bounds by saying this, but both of our women deacons have articulated to me more of a calling to the function of the diaconate outside the liturgy than in the liturgy, where most of my male deacons tend to want to do the liturgical stuff less than the stuff outside, you know? And, and, and maybe, maybe that has something to do with that, or maybe it has something to do with the real courage of women <laughs> who are willing to go get their hands dirty, you know? And uh, Bob? no branch or department of the, of, of the church had the authority to innovate. What you, on essential matters, on right. Essential matters. What you just read, yeah. if I'm recalling it correctly, says that the church doesn't have the authority to innovate. 
suppose all of the <coughs> branches of Christendom were to get together in some miraculous way um, and to decide that, um, stick with women in, in the priesthood, that it was biblically okay mm -hmm. uh, and uh, within the Catholic order for women to be priests. Mm -hmm. um, would you not say that that was an innovation? All right, well, that's a very good question. I'll go down this path for this question, but I don't want us to get stuck here, but I, I'll look at this quickly. Let's say there was a united Christianity, okay? Praveen puts this on the website. Christians throughout the world listen to it. They say, crystal clear now what we need to do. The Pope's calling me up and wants to come over and return to the Catholic faith. And, you know, Constantinople knocks on my door. Hi, I'm Bartholomew II, you know, and, right? And, and, we, and Holy Trinity becomes the center of the unity, okay? Now we have one church. We're all united in, in, in those four things, okay? That's what I love. These are the kind of questions that come up in seminary, like, you're on an island, you know? <laughs> and, uh, so, um, and so, the, and then someone says, well, and then, and only in these circumstances would Susie ever say this, I, I think I want to be a priest, okay? Then once I was up off the floor, okay, they'd say, so how do we go? Now we are the United Church. How do we discern this? The first question we have to discern is, and, and this is not a black and white thing. This is tough, okay? And the first thing we have to discern is, do we believe as the body of Christ that the very question is, is innovative? And if the majority believe, yes, it's, it's an innovation rather than a fuller understanding of what's already been revealed, okay, then that's it. That's the end of the discussion. If, however, it emerges... Um, that it's, it, it could be, at least, a fuller understanding of what has already been revealed regarding the priesthood, then we begin to get into questions then, what does the scripture say about it? What does tradition? What about questions like Joan asked early, earlier? You know, are, were the prohibitions against it based on God's revelation or purely cultural and societal? What about Jesus? I mean, he, he, he allowed women to do things that were baffling in, their, in his culture. So why didn't he call a, a woman to be one of the twelve? Why um, at the upper room when Judas took his life and they were replacing his office with Mary there? And Mary, well, even more than Mary, I would say the obvious candidate would have been whom? Even before the mother of God. If women could be apostles in the apostles' mind, Mary Magdalene, absolutely, Mary Magdalene. Who was there? So we'd have to grapple with, with, with that as, as well. Um, but let's say we did, we, and somehow we, we got through that, and then the whole church received it. This is where it gets difficult. It's just like some of the ancient ecumenical councils. It then gets decreed, and then it has to see Will it be received by the people of God? It's not just that the bishops have decreed it. It's, is it received by the people of God? And that sometimes can take 25, 50, 75 years to truly discern. You know, if something is truly going to be received by the people of God. 
Um, I'll give you a prime example from history. There was a time after the schism of East and West when the Muslims were coming, and they were going to sack Constantinople. And after this, we'll take a break. And they were going to sack Constantinople. And so um, the bishops went to Rome, for the Eastern bishops went to Rome and said, we need help. I know we've had our differences in that we're split and we've excommunicated each other, but this is serious. The Muslims are coming. And they're going to sack Constantinople. You know, I mean, the, you know, the princely city, you know, of Christianity, really, right? Um, will you send troops and help us? Pope said, of course. Do you think we're going to let the differences between us get in the way? Let's just have a, an ecumenical council while we're all here, since you've all come, and we'll just settle a couple of things. <clears throat> okay, great. So they called the council, I believe it was Florence, and they said, so just sign here that you agree in papal jurisdiction, purgatory, transubstantiation, etc., etc. All the bishops realizing that Eastern Christianity and their culture and their society and their wives and their children and their parents and their friends are all going to be killed and taken over by the Ottoman Empire, signed, except for Mark of Ephesus, my buddy, I love Mark of Ephesus. He said, I will not compromise the faith even if it you know, takes my life and the life of everyone I know. All the other bishops signed, and they called it an ecumenical council because it was decreed by the whole church east and west. But was it really? No, it was decreed by the bishops. Then those decrees were taken back to the people, and it was the laity who said, we do not recognize the decrees of those councils. We would rather die holding the faith of the Catholic Church than to live and compromise it. And that council was rejected as being authoritative or ecumenical. So that's a wonderful example from church history where it really, it was, though decreed by bishops as being ecumenical, was not accepted by the laos, the people of God, as being ecumenical and authoritative. Okay, and so um, it would really take a very long uh, process. Would that be discerned by, by letters from the people? I mean... Yeah, by people who would, you know, um, interestingly enough, there was a big woman's movement uh, in the Eastern Orthodox Church um, and women gathered from all over the world, and, and they did studies, and da 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 da. And they were, and everyone was very fearful that they were going to proclaim that women should be priests and bishops, and uh, you know, oh, it's now come to us. And do you know what they proclaim? That women should be deacons again, that it should be allowed, but that women are not called to be priests or bishops. And, and so it was the laity. This was not a movement of bishops. Who, these were the lay women who took their faith seriously and studied and came to that conclusion. Don, and then we'll take our stretch. Well, back then, once something was suggested as being a, a topic, it took them years to get it across the country. Well, it's true. Well, across the world, yeah. I mean, yeah. so it's uh, basically yeah. nothing was snapped in. No, yeah, right, right. But... Um, you, you know, it's um, you know, in some ways, on a minor level, uh, I use this example because it's kind of a, uh, a, a benign example. Um, but uh, a long time ago, when we were still in the uh, up at 116 Union Street in the Episcopal Church, 
I had met Pastor Linda through the interfaith group, and I really felt this strong pull by God that we should move into the Methodist church. And I discussed it with the bishop and uh, Bishop Harvey, and he thought that made some sense because we were over here leasing and sold, and then we took our stand. They can't come in and clinch a building. There's no building because we're, we're leasing, you know? And the bishop thought, you know, that sounds like a very good idea. Brought it to the vestry, and I, we talked about it for a few months, and we never reached agreement. It was always split 50-50. So we didn't move on it. And then eventually we did. I don't think that I was right and the vestry was wrong. What I think is that God began to place it in my heart. And so the idea came from God through me. And the timing, God worked through the vestry. And that's how it came, came across. I'll give you an example in, uh, in Medway, where uh, Father Terrence felt very strongly that a particular place was the right place. And then he had a couple of the leaders who saw it, lay leaders down there, and they agreed to. We came down and we said, well, uh, okay. And then the guy was being, um, uh, something with the lease wasn't working out, didn't work out, didn't work out. And finally the man said, forget it. You guys get out of here. You're being a pain in the butt. I, I, I renege on this. And so we left. Oh, God has, you know, we've, has abandoned us in this thing, da, 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 da. Within a week, that place, that building, all the pipes burst. Taboo. Yeah. And so actually it was God working through it and was protecting us. Wow. You know? And so God works. But this is how God works through systems. And so both at, like, like for example, bishop, rector, and vestry. Let's say I want to call... Deacon Susie, let's say she was a deacon at uh, another Anglican church, and she wanted to come here, and it was okay with the bishops, okay? I have the authority as rector to say, I'm appointing her as my, well, you know, this isn't a good example because deacons don't get paid. Let's say um, uh, Bob was a priest, and he was coming, okay? I, as a rector, can say, I'm appointing Bob to be uh, an assisting priest for me here at Holy Trinity. Now, maybe unwise for me to exercise that authority, but canonically speaking, I don't need the vestry to approve that. I can do it. Here's where... <laughs> yep. And here's where it comes in. Here's where it comes in. Any package and so forth has to be approved. I can't make the vestry pay them. So that's where they have a say. Where does the bishop have a say? I can call Bob. I don't need the vestry to approve it. I can call Bob. But he can't do a thing here until the bishop licenses him to be here. So you see how the bishop has his role? I have my role, and the vestry has their role. And this is how we discern together God working through the laos, which is the people of God. We use laity to mean non-clergy, but in the patristic church, laos meant the people of God, clergy and non-clergy. It's the people of God. And this is how God works through the, the people of, of God. Okay, now God's going to work through just the priest. I make a decision that we have a five-minute break. <laughs> <laughs>